This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Violent Borders, Refugees and the Right to Move by Reese Jones. 40,000 people have died trying to cross between countries in the past decade, and yet international borders only continue to harden. The United Kingdom has voted to leave the European Union. The United States elected a president who campaigned on building a wall. While elsewhere, the popularity of right-wing anti-immigrant nationalist parties is surging. We may live in an era of globalization, he writes, but much of the world is increasingly focused on limiting the free movement of people. In Violent Borders, which I've read and found very useful in my own book research, Jones crosses the migrant trails of the world, documenting the billions spent on border security projects and the dire consequences for countless millions. While the poor are restricted by the lottery of birth to slum dwellings in the ailing, decolonized world, the wealthy travel without constraint, exploiting pools of cheap labor and lax environmental regulations. Violent borders... Refugees and the Right to Move, by Reese Jones, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Central American migrants, often fleeing for their lives, have arrived at the U.S. border in huge numbers in recent years. A tragic reality exploited by right-wing nativists spreading the fear of a third-world invasion that helped make Trump president. And as president, Trump and Attorney General Jeff Sessions have made stoking fears over gangs like Mara Salvatrucha a favorite topic for their most vicious demagoguery. But Trump and Sessions' rhetoric around Central American migrants and gangs obscures one of the most critical points about both. Migrants are refugees fleeing violence that is deeply rooted in U.S. intervention in the region, dating back to Reagan's dirty wars against revolutionary movements in the 1980s. Some of those refugees fleeing those dirty wars formed and joined gangs like Mara Salvatrucha in Los Angeles, and were then deported back to a country with social fabrics and institutions that had been shredded by U.S.-backed violence. Today, the result is catastrophic levels of violence in Central America's Northern Triangle and refugees fleeing north once again. We must be absolutely clear about the fact that Central American refugees are not someone else's distant and foreign problem that the United States, for some reason, has to deal with. Rather, they are fleeing problems that our government, in large part, created. Trump and Sessions' effort to demonize and deport Central Americans is unbearably cruel. It is also a foundational lie that obscures reality. My guest today is Noelle Bridgen, a professor of political science at Marquette University, where she teaches classes on international migration, human security, and international relations. She's also a visiting research scholar at the Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies. 
Noel conducted over two years of ethnographic fieldwork along the migrant trail in home communities in El Salvador, the transit corridor through Mexico, and into the United States between 2009 and 2012, and has made repeated trips back over the last five years. Noelle Bridgen, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. I want to first lay out the basics of what is going on right now with Central American migration. In recent years, can you describe what sort of numbers have been heading to the U.S. and why they're leaving Central America? So we've, we've seen hundreds of thousands of people leaving the Northern Triangle, which is El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Um, and, and we've seen a major transition in that flow in that um, we've moved from what has been generally accepted as a labor migration into a new sort of refugee flow. So to, to explain this, it would be easiest if I put it in the context of um, the longer history of migration from Central America to the United States. So, yeah, please do. So you have... You have what you could consider three eras of migration from Central America to the United States in recent history. It began in the 1980s, where you had hundreds of thousands of people fleeing that um, that region, trying to get to the United States as a result of um, political repression, genocide in Guatemala, and civil war in El Salvador. So these were Cold War conflicts that uh, were pushing people out um, as part of a refugee flow. In the 1990s, you had um, um, peace accords signed in 92 and 94 in El Salvador and Guatemala. And so ostensibly the end of violence and a transition to a post-conflict setting. And with that, you had continued migration out of the region that followed the previous flow of refugees. So you had um, people that used the social networks that had been established during the previous era to, to find job opportunities in the United States um, and heed the call of, of labor demand here, when in fact um, there was very little economic opportunity at home. In the 2000s, we began to see this new transition uh, away from a labor flow and to a mixed flow of refugees and labor migrants. We might call it a human security refugee crisis in that beginning with a series of natural disasters, Hurricane Mitch in Honduras in 1998, uh, an earthquake in 2001, we saw people pushed out of the region for those reasons. Now, Honduras hadn't erupted into violence in the 1980s openly the way you saw in Guatemala and El Salvador. So up to that point, there had been fewer Hondurans on the migrant trail trying to cross Mexico to get to the United States. Nevertheless, they had suffered in the 80s under a, a very repressive political regime. So, And it was also sort of a springboard for U.S. intervention or a base launching base for U.S. intervention in the region. Absolutely. And, and it was also uh, a place of, of uh, refugee camps uh, as well. So you had in the region a lot of displaced people that never made it even as far as um, the United States border. So across the region, you, you had a lot of displacement, both internal displacement within these countries and then between them as well. So, um, so it, in the 2000s, uh, you have this, this changing kind of push factors in the region. And this 
begins to mark the era where you have an escalation of gang violence. Homicide rates in El Salvador and Honduras uh, begin to escalate. You have um, people suffering under extortion from gangs and the territorial control that, that's imposed by the gangs. And, and you also have uh, some continued political repression as the assassination of environmental activists and journalists um, in the region uh, testifies to. And today, you also have an increasing role of extrajudicial violence and police repression pushing people from these countries. And so you have these three waves, first a refugee flow, then a labor flow, then a sort of human security refugee flow that isn't easily recognized by asylum law as a refugee flow. And so it's been, people have been very slow to recognize this last transition. Can you talk about a little what's happening in, in El Salvador and throughout the, the Northern Triangle in these countries that, that deportees are attempting and, and sort of being refused integration um, back into, you have neoliberal economic policies, you have gang violence on the rise, and then you have the, the government kind of uh, mano dura law and order crackdown. Can you talk a little bit about how all three of these things combine to, to lead to the current situation that we have in El Salvador? The first issue is the deportation of asylum seekers. Uh, back to a, a, a place where they are in grave danger. So it's very difficult for Salvadorans in the United States to win their asylum claims based on gang persecution. Uh, the asylum code has been uh, narrowly interpreted such that um, in order to qualify for asylum, it's not enough that you are in clear physical danger. Uh, you must be a member of uh, a social group that's protected. So your persecution has to occur on the basis of your race, your nationality, your religion, your political opinion, or membership in a particular social group that's visible and immutable. Now, there have been some successes in getting people asylum here on the basis of belonging to a social group that's persecuted. But in general, these cases are fighting an uphill battle um, when there's a sort of denial that what's taking place is, is um is political, despite the fact that the gangs control territory. Now, the irony of that is that the Salvadoran government has declared the gangs terrorist groups and has been leveraging the discourse of the war on terror to justify the securitization of its policing and the militarization of its policing and an incredible repression of some of these communities. Um, so, on the one hand, you have the Salvadoran government securitizing its society, arguing that it's dealing with a terrorist threat. And on the other hand, you have people being turned away from the United States as asylum seekers because the violence of the gangs isn't perceived as political. Um, and so there's a sort of disconnect. Meanwhile, the Salvadoran government is denying the fact that the violence is displacing people and still seems to hold to this uh, narrative of labor migration uh, as it attempts to, um, to have an image of control. So, so and, this, and this government, this government, I think it's important to point out, has for quite a few years been an FMLN government. Yes. So the FMLN came to power in El Salvador 
uh, under Funes in 2009 as taking the presidency. And this was a really momentous moment for democracy in El Salvador. The fact that this, this former guerrilla movement could form a political party and then through a free and fair and transparent election be able to come to the presidency, I think, is an important point of optimism uh, for the region. Uh, and so Funes comes to power promising policing that would break from the mano dura or iron fist tradition of the right wing party, um, policing that had been widely criticized by human rights advocates as as repressive and violating civil liberties and leading to overcrowding in prisons and even an escalation of criminal violence as gangs became more organized in the wake of, of such repressive policing. So Funes promises a big change, and he does attempt to put together uh, a program that, that focuses on prevention and rehabilitation issues. Uh, but this program is really underfunded. Uh, and so very early on, it becomes clear that it, it, is, it is failing to control the violence. Um, so this holistic strategy had attempted to look at things like institutional and legal reforms, focusing on courts and, and the investigative capacity of the police. Um, and it was, but the national policy for justice and public security and coexistence, all of that lacked funding. Um, and it, it just kind of fell apart. In 2010, there's a bus burning in Mexicanos where 17 people are locked in a bus by one of the gangs and the bus is set on fire. Uh, wow. And this is an appalling moment that immediately is called an act of terrorism. Um, and it leads to the militarization of dealing with the gangs, where Funes actually deploys troops in El Salvador alongside the police. Um, in 2012, the FMLN again tries to break with Manodura, and they help broker a gang truce that leads to a really dramatic uh, decline in homicides. Um, but but this are, becomes a huge scandal. Yes, of it sorts. does. Ironically, it's, it's, it, it lacked any transparency. And in fact, the government disowned or disavowed their own role in the gang truce initially. So it occurs kind of in the shadows. Um, the other problem with it is that it fails to address problems of extortion, uh, which is really... Um, uh, is, is a major issue in, in the lived experience of insecurity for many Salvadorans. And the it's truth, the sort of everyday predation that gangs yes. have on, on regular people. Absolutely. So when, when, you, when you talk to people in the streets about, about the gang truce, you often hear things like, that was just between them. So between the elite and, and the gangs. And there's really uh, a sense that, that the gang truce lacked legitimacy. Uh, both because of the lack of transparency and because it really didn't resolve the, the type of control that people were feeling in their daily lives. And so it was very, very unpopular with, with the Salvadoran public. And as the 2014 election comes closer, the gang truce falls apart as the political parties all back away from that type of position. So the FMLN turns its back on the truce. Um, disavows any types of, of strategies that would require negotiation with the gangs. Um, meanwhile, both parties, both major parties, still meet secretly with the gangs to, to discuss voter mobilization and suppression. Oh, God. <laughs> so so, so the, the gang truce really ends tragically, despite the fact that I think it was an attempt to think outside of the box. 
murder rates declined dramatically under they, the gangs. They did surprisingly so. Um, I think uh, many people didn't think the gangs could could have that kind of control since they're they're very much decentered in local cliques. Um, and so the dramatic decline in homicides came as a surprise to many observers who didn't know that the gang actually could uh, mandate um, mandate that kind of peace, at least for a time. Now, th- there are some questions about um, whether or not the gang became uh, more effective at hiding its violence as opposed to decreasing it. So there were uh, an uncovering of, of some secret graves uh, from the gang truce period, but, uh, but, but even then it still led to a dramatic decline in homicides. And I think a, another criticism was that it might have allowed them more space to, to organize within Salvadoran prisons, though though I don't know about that criticism because it seemed like they were pretty well organized already. Yeah. yeah um, so, I mean, the, the, the turning of Salvadoran prisons into sort of node centers for command, that really got its major push under Manodura when you had the overcrowding of the prisons. And and putting uh, people together and segregated by which gang they belong to seemed to foster foster that. Um, and then and then the corruption issue has made it very difficult to isolate then the leaders because um, they do tend to to manage to uh, subvert attempts to isolate them with with cell phone technology and and getting messages out. Um, so I think that the overcrowding in the um... And the segregation also, and the lack of institutional capacity, forces the state to cede control of the prisons to the gangs internally. Uh, internally, yes. Um, the prisons are not effectively controlled. And, and, and even worse, very few of the prisoners who are incarcerated at any given time have actually been through an effective court system. Um, it's very difficult to know who's guilty and who isn't if you can't trust the courts and the investigative capacity of the police to differentiate between um, those that commit crimes and those that don't. And so, um, you know, you have a, a pretty horrendous human rights situation when you have um, overcrowded prisons filled with many people who have never actually um, seen a, a day in court that we can trust has decide upon their guilt. The, the U.S. is playing a supporting role in these Manodura crackdowns over the years. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, the U.S. Uh, U.S. has been the great partner for these security strategies. Uh, we've sent consultants. We've, we've sent resources and training. So that, that security partnership very much continues from the previous period where we had a security partnership to fight leftist insurgency and now we have security partnership to fight fight the gang threat. The this is the the context you've been discussing is from whence this major exodus of central Me- uh, American refugees are fleeing beginning in 2014 and Obama was president at the time and immigration politics had once again become incredibly heated in the U.S. Can you say a little about that summer or spring? I don't recall when when huge numbers of Central Americans first started arriving um, and turning themselves in at the at the U.S. Mexico border. 
also, um, I mean, huge, huge numbers of Central American migrants had been arriving for quite some time. Uh, you had an increase in um, family units and in uh, what they call unaccompanied minors. Now, an unaccompanied minor is not a child that's traveling alone necessarily. <laughs> They're oftentimes traveling to reunite with family members in the United States. They're not abandoned children. Um, they oftentimes are traveling with a smuggler who's paid by a family member. Um, so the, the term unaccompanied is a little bit inaccurate in the sense that it gives the impression that we're dealing with sorts of orphaned children or abandoned children, and that's not the case. Uh, also, when we talk about unaccompanied minors, some of these uh, minors are under the age of 18, but nevertheless making very adult decisions, which in their social context, uh, they, sh they should be capable of doing. And, and then you have, of course, much smaller children that are incapable of uh, representing themselves in migration courts and so forth that we have not responded to adequately. So you have this influx of, of unaccompanied minors. And in response, what Obama does is to double down on deterrence and just call it humanitarian. So he has a media campaign to uh, launched in order to educate people about the risks of sending your children to the United States in an attempt to deter them from doing so, rather than addressing some of those root causes. He has increased detention. He increased detention of women and children waiting for asylum hearings. He also publicly supported the Im increased immigration enforcement measures in Mexico. So he outsourced the U.S. border to Mexico in that he supported Mexico when they instituted what they called Plan Sur. Plan Sur was an intensification of policing along security belts in southern Mexico. And they specifically targeted the freight trains where people the poorest, most vulnerable migrants, those that can't afford door-to-door -door smuggling services often, um, high-dollar services, the, the people that are fleeing with fewer resources attempt to board the freight train um, as a vehicle to move north. And so there were a series of raids on this freight train to get people off and deport them back to Central America. Uh, since this crisis, Mexico has deported more Central Americans than the United States each year as a result of this dramatic crackdown. So what we did was we answered the increase in asylum seekers and children showing up at our border by apprehending them before they could ever step foot on U.S. soil and make claims to legal rights that they deserve. It's remarkable what Obama is doing here, um, and it's really a continuation really rooted in this uh, prevention through deterrence border militarization from the 90s that you were discussing, um, which is saying, you know, I'm just trying to be a humanitarian, you know, don't don't uh, migrate without authorization uh, because the, the, the road is the the trail is way too dangerous. Um, you could die along the way, even though it is the very policies that his administration and his predecessors have impl implemented that has made the journey so dangerous, and in fact, that have made Central America's Northern Triangle so dangerous Absolutely. in the first place. Absolutely. And the Mexican, our Mexican partner then picks up on that rhetoric very quickly and uses it as well. So Plan Sur is, is called very explicitly an attempt to protect migrants by 
by protecting them by not letting them put themselves at risk on the dangerous freight train that they ride. And so all of these deportations are framed in this protection move. And this is a continuation of, as you said, this bipartisan escalation of border policing uh, in the U.S. What's also interesting is it fits into a larger global phenomenon um, where we can see this also in the migration crisis in the Mediterranean. Scholars have called it the humanitarian security nexus. So by declaring a crisis and then leveraging the sorts of humanitarian expectations that we have of a state and uh, humanitarian discourse, uh, we see a justification of border securitization, and it also comes coupled with this outsourcing of immigration policing to neighboring countries with very vile human rights records. Uh, and so it's, I think it's ironic because we tend to think of undocumented migrants surviving because they remain invisible or stay in the shadows. But here we have human rights violations surviving because they're pushed into the shadows. They're pushed away from the U.S. border where they're most visible politically and into um, southern Mexico. And a key piece of this, I think, in both the Mediterranean and in North and Central America is the demonization of smugglers as the people who are – are putting people in harm's way and 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 getting them killed and and uh, injured. Yeah. So the the figure of the smuggler uh, plays an important role justifying these policies, and it obscures the role of the state in creating the danger to begin with. Uh, yes. So so the villain of the smuggler, and then the the victim of the migrant who ultimately isn't treated like a victim but instead deported. Um, that definitely plays a role in this discourse of, of humanitarianism uh, with an edge. Now, I should say that it, it's important to note that, that Obama did do two things that are important that uh, Trump is actively undoing. Um, so there were two uh, humanitarian responses that Obama did make that were insufficient, but nevertheless, at least they were something. Um, he did institute the Central American Minor Program, and what that does or did uh, was that it allowed um, lawfully present U.S. residents to apply for refugee status or parole for their children that were in Central America. So the idea was that if they were in Central America and in danger, rather than taking these risks of of crossing Mexico, they could go to the U.S. Embassy and uh, apply for this program. So you had over 9,500 applications since 2015, and it only managed to admit a few hundred children. So it was just a drop in the bucket because the program had all of these implementation barriers, um, people lacked information about it, and they did nothing to um, to make sure the children were secure during the process, which could be very long and bureaucratic and indefinite. Um, so, so and meanwhile, they're in San Salvador and maybe their life is at risk. Exactly. So many parents would opt not to do the program, but still risk sending their children, even though the program had been on paper available. Now, so so this was insufficient, but nevertheless, it was something. It was a move in the right direction. And Trump has it was a concession it. on a, it was a concession on Obama's part that, however, disingenuous and woefully insufficient that, okay, we're cracking down on the irregular process. We're going to open up a tiny regular process for young people to get here. It was a space that we had hoped we could widen, 
um, but uh, but now has been closed. Yeah. Yeah. So now Trump, the- I mean, is closing that and and also going after the parents of, of of minors who are already here. Is that is that right? Yes. And the the other thing that he's doing, I mean, now Obama deported more people than any other president in history. But what Trump is doing that appears unique is that he's very specifically also targeting churches, schools, and hospitals. And so the effect that that has on communities with mixed citizenship, communities that are mixed together citizens, legal permanent residents, undocumented people, um, the political and social consequences and fragmentation that that can cause, um, the lived experience of terror that that causes in those communities is, I think, uh, uh, far worse than what we were experiencing previous to Trump. So we can watch the continuities between these different administrations, but I do think it's important to emphasize that that pattern itself is so disruptive for American democracy. So the other thing that that, that Obama did um, was that he had the, the two for, 2014 Alliance for Prosperity in the Northern Triangle. And this initiative was widely um, criticized as, again, just a drop in the bucket and an extension of some of the types of economic policies that hadn't worked previously. But nevertheless, it did include funding for economic development, for public security and institutional reform. And it looks like Trump's new budget completely strips any type of economic development and institutional reform agenda and focuses almost exclusively on security. So once again, propping up those types of mano dura strategies without actually addressing underlying causes of violence in the region. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. Hey, obviously you are listening to The Dig Radio. As you probably know, we have started doing a second weekly episode. To keep that going, we really need your support, by which I mean your money. So please hit pause and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a monthly contribution. We really appreciate it, and we can't do this show without our listener support. So thank you. And now, back to the show. Were you surprised when Trump and Sessions decided to make Mara Salvatrucha such a central theme in their war on crime political war on crime and anti-immigrant political rhetoric? No, I, I wasn't particularly surprised. I mean, Mexican net migration has fallen to zero. In 2015, we had near historic lows. Uh, for Mexican migration. So it makes sense that you needed a new border boogeyman um, and the Central Americans fit the bill. And this type of um, kind of fear mongering has, uh, has its parallel in El Salvador. So you have the criminalization of deportees in El Salvador and you have very much a sort of what's been called a folk devil in the gang member that's been used to justify um, justify police repression there. And so these two things fit together so neatly in the puzzle. So in the U.S., um, uh, we have a bill sitting in, co- in Senate. Excuse me. It, it actually passed the House of Representatives. It's called the Criminal Alien Gang Member Removal Act. And this, oh, God. this yes, <laughs> this 
authorizes the Department of Homeland Security to designate any group of five or more people as a criminal gang, and then to deport any immigrant thought to have facilitated or participated in that gang's illegal activities. So it's a very wide, ambiguous criteria for defining who is a member of this group, and it would potentially render um, many, many, many more people deportable because it's it's clear that it lends itself to sort of the misclassification of everyday people as as gang members. Um, So you have this that would render all of these people deportable on on very um, untrustworthy grounds. And then at the same time, just recently, just this year, in El Salvador, um, the Legislative Assembly actually passed a decree called the Special Provisions for the Control and Follow-Up of the Salvadoran Returnee Population Classified as Members of Maras, Gangs, or Illicit Associations. This decree actually facilitates the incarceration of deportees. So... What it does was it demands that um, people that are deported as gang members or gang collaborators must report monthly to police. Um, They can't congregate in uh, certain locations or meet with known gang members. Uh, They have to demonstrate evidence of a job search. But the problem is that there's no clear criteria for determining who is a gang member. So if you're deported from the U.S. under this very ambiguous umbrella of, of a gang member, suddenly you're subject to all of this repression that very easily will put you in jail or in the context of extrajudicial violence, put you in the grave. So it's like a deportation to grave pipeline that they're setting up. And it's because that narrative or that discourse of criminalization of deportees and, and the gangs, um, the fear mongering that takes place in El Salvador that justifies this securitization of their policing links so neatly and so perfectly with the agenda that Trump and Sessions have in the United States. So that's it's so troubling on so many levels because in the U.S. over the past few decades, what we've seen is this increasing linkage to the point where they're almost indistinguishable of the immigration enforcement and deportation system on the one hand and the ballooning system of mass incarceration and policing on the other and now what what this what you're describing in El Salvador just sort of makes the Salvadoran government a a proxy force for the US immigration system. Absolutely. So there is definitely this nexus between the criminalization of immigrants and the criminalization of deportees and it's extraordinarily dangerous. I mean one of the ironies of the you know really sad ironies of the American immigration system is that it allows for criminal type punishment to take place in a system that has even less due process than our already woefully uh, unjust criminal justice system. The, the civil immigration system has, has almost no due process at all. And so people are being classified based on, on this even weaker, uh, not weaker, but uh, less, less precise, less just system. And then that sort of that, that civil categorization or punishment of deportation is then sort of being laundered into a criminal directly into the heart of the criminal system in El Salvador. Yes. And it's a criminal system that is desperate for the reform of the courts. It desperately needs better investigative capacity, um, human rights protections, uh, and, and really the emphasis on policing there is, uh, is, uh, is 
is violence and repression. So, and this is true just, and the other interesting parallel is that it's bipartisan in El Salvador too. So our border securitization and the criminalization of immigrants has been a bipartisan project in the U.S. since since the 80s and 90s. And in El Salvador, you have the FMLN government that had promised um, all of these reforms for community policing and social prevention uh, focused on very hardline policies that are very recognizable as a continuation of the right-wing Arena Party agenda. So uh, you see this under Funes um, after the gang truce falls apart. You see it when Sanchez Seren, who's also an FMLN uh, president who comes into power with the 2014 elections. Um, he again makes a pledge that he will have a plan for a safe El Salvador that, that has things like uh, social prevention in it. But ultimately, where the emphasis is put is on things like special reaction forces of army police units that go in to liberate zones from quote-unquote terrorists. Um, and it's very much modeled on uh, the favela strategies in Brazil, um, and very reminiscent, again, of, of counterinsurgent strategies uh, from civil war. So, um, so you Except have, this time the FMLN is running the state rather than fighting it. Exactly. And now we have this dramatic escalation of extrajudicial killings, despite the fact that we have um, the FMLN in power. So you have um, – I don't have good data on, on what's happening, but you had um, – a ratio, according to El Faro, a newspaper that's done wonderful investigative journalism on um, on extrajudicial killings and uncovered several cases that are very important. Um, you have, in 2016, a ratio of one police officer killed for every 53 alleged gang members. Um, and, and there's also this point being made that there have been increased confrontations where the gangs actually confront the police violently or ambush the police, but police have also uh, allegedly been using um, the idea that these confrontations are increasing as an excuse to exterminate um, potential or alleged gang members, and then uh, calling it a confrontation where they have the right to protect themselves. So you had 650 alleged confrontations between police and gangs in 2016 that resulted in the death of 603 alleged gang members. And again, the human rights advocates are arguing that unlawful killings are getting labeled by police as confrontations in order to justify extrajudicial actions. Because um, you said you said the ratio of, of police to, to alleged gang member death was, was what? Something like one to... One to 53. Uh, yeah, that sounds a lot more like a death squad ratio than a conflict ratio. So again, echoes of the past when we think about... Um, previous patterns of violence in, in a setting where uh, in a setting where many of the questions that caused the civil war went unresolved, socioeconomic inequality um, and, and, and so forth. So uh, the, unfortunately, this violence is actually quite popular with the general public is, is part of the problem. So you have both political parties courting uh, the electorate through um, through violence. And, and I guess that it is a sort of parallel to the U.S. where you have both political parties courting the U.S. electorate with these types of crackdowns on border security as well. Why do you think it is that the FMLN 
which fought a many years long armed struggle against state repression and oligarchic exploitation is now running a government that perpetuates it. And in a related question to that that I want to tack on is how has the the horizon of of Salvadoran politics become so limited and and so cynical? I think that we've romanticized the FMLN. That we love to yeah. wave our red banner. We love to wear our little chair t-shirts. Um, and we love to think of the FMLN as the heroes of the story, but there was a lot of interscene violence within the FMLN. It paled in comparison to what the government was committing. You know, there was a, clearly a good guy and a bad guy in the Civil War, Salvadoran Civil War, and the FMLN was the good guy. Um, but nevertheless, there was a lot of interesting violence. They killed, they killed Dalton. They killed the highest-ranking female guerrilla yeah. leader. Um, this is not an organization that's ever been um, really reflexive about its own use of violence, um, about patriarchy. And so when you had an end to the conflict, um, you, you essentially took a model for electoral democracy and planted it there but without addressing issues related to patriarchy and violence and inequality. And so I don't see how we would have expected the FMLN to turn out any different than um, another group, uh, another uh, just another political party in, in an unjust system um, when that's the case. So I think it's a combination of the fact that we tend to romanticize the conflict and then Really, there there were unaddressed issues, not only with the causes of the conflict, but with the fact that violence was never really disavowed um, as a means to solve problems by either side. And it also, I, that sounds right to me, and it also seems like the, the sharp constraints that the post-war order, both initially and as it dissolved into the the spiral of state mara violence was was such that by the time the FMLN did take power, all of their internal problems combined with just an incredibly bad hand to to yeah. play. Yeah, I mean they they were. I think that's right too. That emphasis on the fact that their hands were tied in a number of ways. So they take control of an economy that's already dollarized. So uh, that that was a very effective way of tying the hands for, for government spending. But at the same time, they don't have an effective tax base. Um, they've dealt with decades of corruption that then continue uh, after the FMLN take power. Um, and so what types of programs are they really going to institute that could address the root causes of violence when they've already seen the economy and the potential of the government to intervene in the economy uh, dismantled over decades of neoliberal economic reform. So I do think that um, that context was was very important for channeling then um, their energies towards these iron fist policies. I want to talk more about the realities that migrants face on the migrant trail, because you've spent a lot of time on that trail. What was it like when you first started researching and how has it changed over the years? What sort of things have you seen and, and heard? 
you know, we talked a little bit about the different periods of migration. And in in the 2000s, right around 2005, 2006, you saw this dramatic escalation of the drug war where um, where they began to decapitate the, the different cartels. And I use the word cartel um, with, uh, uh, what's the right word? Hesitance? Scare quotes. Cause, cause, yeah, I mean, um, so Mexican drug gangs may be better put. Um, so, so they, so they begin to, to shake this up so that there's a lot of fighting and territorial change between the competing drug gangs in Mexico. Um, and as a result in that time period of the drug war, not only do you have increased risks to migrants crossing Mexico, um, but you have increased uncertainty. So it's the idea that territory rules of the game, protocols, relationships between key actors that underpin the smuggling market from Central America to the United States, all of this is disrupted and can change so quickly that between one journey to the next, it's very difficult to predict if your information is still reliable about who you need to pay to cross a particular criminal territory as a passage fee, um, about who can be trusted, about uh, whether or not the terms of contracts are reliable that you're engaging in. Um, and so this was very dangerous both for migrants and smugglers. Um, I think it's very important not to conflate the, the smugglers with the criminal terrain bosses. So one That's a very important point. Yeah, one individual can play many roles. They can be a kidnapper. They can be a member of, of a group that controls terrain. They can be a smuggler. They may pass in and out. of. They might also be... Um, you know, a police officer, they might pass in and out of all of these roles at different moments. Uh, but nevertheless, there is a clear tension that emerges in the 2000s between the Central American smugglers and the Mexican criminal terrain bosses. So groups like the Zetas emerge and challenge their former allies, um, take over territory, and then they start to demand new fees, uh, new crossing fees from the Central American smugglers. And if the Central American smugglers don't pay, they're killed. They're tortured. Um, sometimes uh, they're, um, they're kidnapped with their groups and everyone is tortured until they can figure out who the smuggler's boss is and then renegotiate a passage fee as they take control of territory. And, and from these groups, you also see the emergence of a mass kidnapping industry where rather than um, delivering people for a final payment that would have been paid to a smuggler in the U.S., uh, these different types of gangs start to kidnap people and hold them for ransom, the payments that would have been paid to a smuggler upon delivery then go to a kidnapper who then simply either releases the person or turns them over to Mexican immigration authorities to deport, be deported back to Central America, or, or maybe they don't release them at all and they then um, continue to negotiate for more money and extort more money from the family. Um, so there's this kidnapping industry that grows in the 2000s. So the route was always really dangerous with banditry and cheating and rape. But you have very systematic, organized violence uh, that we hadn't seen before emerge in that time period with the mix-up of all of the different territories between gangs and relationships and so forth. So it's a very uncertain route um, where you have new forms of violence um, that emerge from day to day um, during that time. That was when I started doing my field work. 
So I did my field work from primarily from 2009 um, to 2012 uh, in El Salvador and Mexico. And I've returned many times since then. Um, the time period I was there, I think, was a sort of um, uh, a climax of uncertainty because territory was changing hands so quickly that even smugglers would sometimes hide in a migrant shelter pretending to be a migrant because they didn't know who they needed to pay in order to cross north. This is also a period where people start to pay smugglers from Central America, the type of smugglers that are high-end, that do door-to-door service and are much safer to travel with. Um, they begin to pay smugglers not because the smuggler knows the way, but because he knows who to pay in order to cross safely. And the primary concern isn't always border patrol, but is sometimes crossing Zeta territory or the territory of these criminal groups in, in northern Mexico that were very efficient at identifying who migrants were and smugglers and then demanding passage fees. So you, you pay the smuggler in order to get through this criminal network as opposed to worrying primarily about Border Patrol who might deport you back. There, There's this huge importance placed on the distinction between economic migrants uh, versus refugees. What do you make of the, the legal, political, and I guess even moral significance of these categories? And to what extent we should accept working and kind of fighting within them? So, I mean, I think the dichotomy between an economic migrant and a political refugee is a false dichotomy. Human beings are far more complicated uh, than that as individuals with with personal motivations, as well as, as, as societies where economic vulnerability and vulnerability to violence clearly intersect. Um, so this dichotomy between economic migrant and, and refugee, uh, between somebody who has free will and moves in search of opportunity versus somebody who is involuntarily pushed, all of this relies on a lot of uh, oversimplifying assumptions about how we work as humans and how we work as a society. Um, now, as far as uh, you know, whether or not we should be content with the way the current refugee regime is structured, because it is very much structured around the assumption that there is only a uh, a clear uh, legal protection for people who migrate as refugees as opposed to to labor. Um, I think in the long run, no. Um, in the long run, especially as we have uh, as we begin to recognize the role of environmental change. Um, in pushing people out, um, as we recognize the the role that violence plays in reinforcing poverty and and economic vulnerability plays in, in creating vulnerability to violence, um, and and also the the clear um, the clear global disparity between people who are born in the global south versus the global north. And our own uh, responsibility in both creating that disparity and then continually reinforcing it, um, I think that we need to call into question the lack of protection for people who move uh, for reasons that aren't well captured by the very narrow definition of refugee that we have. Yeah, I think that's really well said and an important point. And I, not only are the categories as they're 
lived and created, not not so neat. But I think when we when we start disrupting the those categories, we can see that analytically speaking, whether people are migrating because of economic reasons, because of state repression and violence, because of non-state criminal violence that often, and very much so in the case of of El Salvador, the the, the political decisions and actions um, that have been taken, at least in perceived benefit of, of the powerful, are deeply implicated in creating a a context that 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 pushes and pulls people onto migration routes. Absolutely, I, I should say as a source, another source of optimism. Um, I've seen a really major change along the migration route since I began my research in um, people's awareness of the asylum system. So. Um, when I started my migration research in 2009, in the interviews, um, people would, when I asked, why are you leaving? Or why do you want to leave El Salvador? Or why did you leave? People would respond first with a sort of narrative of, of poverty um, and economic opportunity and providing for their family. Not always, but this was often kind of the starting point, And it had to do with the responsibility as a breadwinner for their children or their family. Um, and, but then if I kept asking them beyond that first question, I said, well, why don't you have a job? Um, there would be simmering under the surface of the labor migrant narrative, a narrative about violence. And they didn't have a job because they had to close their shop because the gang members were demanding too much extortion and they couldn't afford to stay open. Or they didn't have a job because they didn't feel safe traveling from one part of the city to the other because they'd have to cross a gang border. Um, and so in that way, you could see how uh, poverty and violence were interwoven. Um, now, now, when I do interviews of people along the route, um, oftentimes, not, not exclusively, but oftentimes people will start their story with violence and how that pushed them onto the route. So they'll talk about the threats that they had received. Um, they'll talk about a beating or... Um, or other types of uh, deaths that had occurred around them. And then if you continue to ask them about what makes them vulnerable to that violence, you'll hear stories of economic deprivation and poverty and how they can't afford to change their commute or they can't afford the type of residence that would make them feel secure to sleep at night. And so you still have this complex interplay between violence and poverty, but the narrative has slipped to put violence first. Now, violence has gotten worse, but I don't think all of this flip of the narrative is because the violence is getting worse. I think people are increasingly conscious of the fact that they deserve to be protected. I think they took for granted before that, that, they, that there was no government that was responsible to them. And I think now people think, even if I don't get asylum, maybe I should get asylum. And so there's been a, a dissemination of information that asylum is a potential uh, avenue for entry into the United States. And even if it doesn't work, there is a rising consciousness that it should work for people. Um, if you explain to someone, you know, whether or not you are, um, 
persecuted on the basis of membership in a particular protected category makes a difference, it's almost unintelligible. What do you mean that it matters why I'm killed? Uh, all that matters is that I need safety. And so there is, I think, a growing challenge to this very narrow category that we use to assign who gets asylum and who doesn't. And I, and I think that among the people themselves, there is just um, a greater demand for, for protection in a just asylum system. Lastly, I wanted to turn back to to Trump and ask you about what his approach has been in office. Um, initially, border apprehensions plunged after his inauguration and asylum claims in Mexico shot up pretty dramatically. But recently, apprehensions at the border are climbing again. And now uh, Trump is looking to hold DACA hostage to a deal to further crack down on Central American asylum speaker uh, asylum seekers mm-hmm. and TPS which is um which I'll ask you to explain is also potentially in danger of being ended in regards to TPS um so this is a, a temporary status that was issued to people um who had come undocumented to the United States um it's uh it's a status that's meant to protect people from being sent back to a uh, a crisis or extraordinary uh, violence or environmental disaster or just very dangerous conditions. Um, and so it was granted to Salvadorans um, uh, in 2001 after the earthquake. Hondurans received it after Hurricane Mitch. Uh, and it's just been kind of renewed ever since then to the point where we now have uh, 195,000 Salvadorans, more or less, I think, estimated, um, almost 60,000 Hondurans um, that have uh, acquired uh, this temporary protection. And the expectation really has been, even though it's temporary in the name, that it would just be renewed because it has been since 2001. And these are people that have fully integrated now into U.S. society. So these many of them are homeowners. They're parents of U.S. citizen children because they've lived here so long. Um, They may be married to people uh, who have legal permanent residence and so forth. So if Trump were to decide not to renew this program, very suddenly we would have uh, over 200,000 people instantly rendered deportable to these countries that we've seen don't have the institutional or economic capacity to absorb them and are actively criminalizing the people who are being sent back. Um, So this would be a humanitarian crisis of epic proportions to suddenly render 200,000 members of our community that have integrated into the economy and society deportable. And then with, uh, with regard to the, the DACA, the potential DACA deal? This is uh, an old, uh, old strategy in U.S. politics, right? I mean, we've seen this with, with other immigration reform issues where, you know... For like every single amnesty- one since the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. you take one... 
but then two steps back. So you give an amnesty, but then you um, pile resources at the border and uh, securitize the border and increase risks to people coming and close the door further. So this, I, this kind of holding a hostage of a potential benefit to one immigrant group at the expense of uh, continuing down the road of securitization, uh, that's, that's, that's how it's done in, in D.C. I don't, I don't know what to expect from that other than the fact that I'm ve- not very optimistic about anything right now. I guess the m- most positive thing that can be said about it is that dreamer activists seem very opposed to any sort of deal to their benefit that criminalize okay. that facilitates any sort of crackdown on other immigrants more more resolute very resolutely opposed to that while democrats you know maybe not so much yeah and and the, i would say that you know we've talked a lot about the echoes of the past and how the same actors and institutions that are violent have resurfaced about how the security partnership continues we talked about how it's no coincidence because they never really got peace even though they resolved their their political conflict um but one echo of the past that I think is worth pointing to that might give us a glimmer of hope is the resurgence of the sanctuary movement. So uh, in that previous era of the 1980s, when we faced that first refugee flow from Central America, you had churches, attorneys, and refugees themselves forming a social movement to contest the treatment of the, the mistreatment of refugees who were being denied their asylum claims. And, you know, it's very famous for the fact that there were churches that openly defied the government um, and, and announcing that they were providing sanctuary to these people. But also alongside of those churches, there were people very quietly working within the system, uh, asylum lawyers making arguments in the courts, uh, refugees giving their testimonies all within the bounds of what was, was uh, legal, not necessarily in, in out defiance of the government. So it was a much richer, deeper movement than just those those highly politicized moments uh, of sanctuary would even give credit. And I think we've seen that today. Even under Obama, you began to see the rebirth of the sanctuary movement as people got really upset at the U.S. failure to obey its moral and legal obligations to families in keeping them together. And and now that, that there is finally an increased recognition that it's not just poverty pushing people out, but also the relationship to poverty and violence pushing people out of the region. Um, you have asylum attorneys that are really working hard to make these claims in the courts. You have churches that are mobilizing to support asylum seekers yet again. Um, and all of this happening in the past, it was, it was part of a protest of, of, the unjust U.S. foreign policies and intervention in the region. And now I think you see it as part of a protest against this resurgent racism in U.S. politics. Um, and so that, I think, is, is a sign for optimism, if we're going to have one, um, is, is the type of organizing that we see on the ground, not just the publicized outward defiance of the federal government, which is even taking place in cities and states, governments, but also... Um, all of the people working within the asylum courts to to get these people access. Well, Noel Bridgen, thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs) 
Noelle Bridgen is a professor of political science at Marquette University. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once communicated via the secret code used by the Maganista cross-border revolutionary movement, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, mostly twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler Bow. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, take a moment to leave us a review, hopefully a friendly one. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, which is great. Also great is telling your friends about the show. Any and all propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. Also appreciated is your financial support. If you haven't done so yet, please go to patreon.com slash the dig and contribute what you can. Whatever that amount is, is great and a huge help. Thank you.